we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where it's desperately trying to become springtime. I am joined here in Washington, D.C. by... Our loyal buddies, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you doing, Rosa? I'm good, David. And, of course, Edward Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? On top of the world, thank you. Top of the world. And I'm delighted that we have a special guest who has not been with us before, but many of you may have seen him recently on television or read things that he has written. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is the Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at Yale School of Management and Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies there. How are you doing, Jeff? Great. Um, Thank you for reading out so fulsome a title. It's like a fold-out business card. I'm especially honored. Thank you. I'm really honored, actually, to be in the shadows of the three of you. (laughs) Well, you're very, very kind to say so. You and I were on a TV show a week ago or so, and I said nothing of note, and you made some extremely important points about the Russian economy, a points about the Russian economy that ran directly contrary to everything that we've been hearing in the mainstream media for the better part of a year, because we've been hearing that the sanctions haven't worked, the Russians are weathering this all well, everything's great. And subsequent to uh, that conversation, I have seen that you have published more and appeared more, taking this a bit further and essentially throwing down the goal with the IMF, accusing them of essentially taking Russian numbers, which are very, very unreliable, and validating them without uh, giving them the kind of scrutiny that they deserve. So I think the place to begin is if you can, and I know this is difficult, but if you can briefly lay out your thesis on this point. Thank you so much. You uh, did a fabulous job of encapsulating every point that I'd want to make. So uh, in a worst case, what did Hillel say? You want to deliver the the Old Testament standing on one leg uh, as the golden rule. You pretty much summarized the key points. 
So if anybody tunes out, all they need to do is to replay what you said, and I'm going to elaborate on that, is there are people on the left and on the right and the center who have just been a lifelong cynics of these kinds of interventions, you know, thinking on one side, people who are friends of ours, Fareed Zakaria, Larry Summers, uh, is uh, Paul Krugman on one side who've been skeptical about these economic uh, blockades, uh, and on the other side of the aisle, Marie Le Pen, you know, if that's even an aisle, is, and of course, Putin himself likes to disparage them. The reality is, of course, there have been disappointments, and people love, as a, as a circular chorus, to tell us that Cuba, North Korea, and Iran uh, uh, are not winning examples of how a, an effective economic blockade would work. And that would be right, because why? It's not an effective economic blockade. There are selective sanctions that we would take a show on each one of those countries just to still just break the ice in the beginnings, is that there's selective sanctions on selective industries. What, when they work, they're comprehensive across all industries, but also they're comprehensive across continents. And that's what we have in this case. But even more so, where they have worked, which is in South Africa in the 1988 apartheid regime exit, uh, or, or Pinochet in, uh, in Chile, or to the surprise of many of uh, listeners, is actually Arab Spring was not the explanation for the fall of Gaddafi in Libya. Those were neighboring countries. It had to do with the effective use of blockades. Similarly, uh, Ceausescu in Romania, Eric Honecker in East Germany, uh, Jaruzelski in Poland. We go into tales on each of them. We've written extensively on what actually happened. But what happened, just to drill down on South Africa in particular, is I never got to know uh, Nelson Mandela, but I did get to know Bishop Desmond Tutu a bit. And he explained to me in the early 90s how important it was to have the private sector. At that point, it was the high watermark of 200 companies that pulled out voluntarily so that the governmental sanctions, which often get discounted by autocrats to their target population, saying, oh, we're being vilified. We're the victims of diplomatic intrigue and that uh, it's, it's envious Western powers that, that want our resources or something of that nature. That doesn't work when the private sector, of all things, General Motors, under the troubled leadership of, uh, of, uh, you know, of Roger Smith even, and IBM and, uh, and Coca-Cola and others, when they pulled out of South Africa, as the private level decisions is what to Bishop Tutu reinforced to me, is that the private sector decisions were something more, that there's a major sacrifice. There wasn't just governmental sanctions alone. They fortify each other so that it has symbolic and substantive uh, inexorably intertwined impacts. So the average white South African, especially the Afrikaners, no longer can see themselves as, as victims, but rather they saw that they were pariahs in the global community and their nation was a rogue nation. That's what happens at all these other fronts where it's worked. There's always been like a patron saint that bails out uh, North Korea. If there was no China, there was obviously uh, North Korea is 99% of the trading partner. We don't have that in this situation. China is not even at this point still bailing out Russia. So in fact, these sanctions are working. Now, do they, do they stop the war in itself? No, neither do the HIMARS and neither will the, the, the Leopard and, and Abrams tanks stop the war on their own. But what they work together and Putin is losing or at least stalled out in the military battle in terms of the, the, the warfare on diplomacy. He certainly lost much of the world. And in terms of the, um, the e economic battle he's losing, but where he has get, gains ground is on uh, two other wars, which is the, the disinformation war and the war of attrition is because of the penchant for self-criticism we have so much in, especially in the West. And the cynicism is that Putin plants false information. And you're right. And let me close on this because I don't want to do a monologue on this. 
but every sector of Russia is failing. Two-thirds of his export economy is the energy business. He is losing. You're hearing this. Uh, your listeners are hearing this perhaps for the first time. He's losing a half a billion dollars a day on energy. And unlike what the IMF even mumbled their way through this morning on a CNN broadcast trying to defend themselves from my charges, saying, well, in the short term, they're getting money from China and India. No, they're not. China and India, they're losing money, losing a dollar on every barrel that they send to China and India in oil because it cost them the least efficient OPEC plus producer. It cost them $45 a barrel to extricate it from the, from the ground and then another 10 to $12 to import it to India and China. So that's $56, $57. Guess what? Look at the charts right now. Oil is selling for $55. Their oil, Ural's oil, is nobody wants Russian oil. And the Indians and Chinese are living off the coattails of the price caps. They are beneficiaries of this. They may not have signed on to it, but they're happy to pay less. And that's what they're doing. So Russia, they're even cutting back on oil production because they're losing on it. On gas, the EU is overwhelmingly dependent on gas. Guess what? They need zero Russian gas today. Already, the U.S. alone provides more gas to Europe than, the, than Russia did at its peak. Same with Norway alone provides more than Russia did at its peak. Algeria is eager to fill in the rest, and there are 11 other countries that are chomping at the bit. It's LNG, liquefied natural gas, which can be shipped. And thanks to the amazing genius of the Germans in Chinese-level speed, they've built six massive conversion plants that convert the LNG in liquid form back into a vaporous form to go through European pipelines. When Putin says with all of his bravado that filled, that fooled the IMF, and we have their quotes videotaped, they were completely snookered by, and perhaps willingly so, by Putin, who said, well, I'm just going to pivot east because gas is fungible and sell to India and China. He said that he couldn't do it. And you know why? Because his gas is all vapor. It has to travel through pipelines. Guess what he doesn't have in India and China? He doesn't have a, pipe, a network of pipelines. It would take six years to do that. And since the outbreak of war a year and a week ago, he hasn't lifted a shovel to dig one inch of those tunnels yet, and it takes six years. So, you know, this is this is ludicrous. And everything else, metals, wheat, we don't Russia was nothing more than a vassal raw materials colony, like in an old mercantile system. They bring nothing, no finished goods to the world marketplace other than cyber terrorism that I don't think anybody wants to pay for. Well, that frames it pretty well and pretty starkly. And it's a, I think it's a really immense story because um you know, the question is, you know, can Russia carry on? Uh, and uh, economic pressure may be the thing that causes political tension at home. It may be the thing that makes it harder for him to lead this war of attrition. Let's go to a question from Rosa and then one from Ed. Yeah, you know, I was actually wanted to pick up on something, a comparison you made to the uh, sanctions against South Africa, the to end apartheid. And one of the things that it always seemed to me that helped that work was exactly what you said, that it wasn't just the government, that it became a, a cause uh, all around, certainly around the U.S., many other parts of the world. It became seen as a, an important moral cause. You had students on college campuses getting their campuses to divest. You had private companies coming under pressure from shareholders to divest. Um, my sense is that that is not happening with Russia to even close to the same extent. And I, I wonder, I wonder, am I right about that? And and if I am, why do we think this is not why and this is really a question, I guess, for everybody actually, why do we think it is? Is just that the apartheid struggle had years to gain momentum, and whereas the the Ukraine crisis is relatively new, uh, or is there just something else that is not are, are people too cynical about sanctions working at this point? 
that even though you believe they work, that, uh, you know, the average American thinks, ah, it's not going to work, doesn't make any difference. So I'm just curious what you think about that. The good news there, Rose, I'm so glad you asked the question because I'm sure it's not your cynicism you're expressing, but there's things you're picking up as sentiment out on in street discourse. And the good news there, since it's not your own, is that you're not going to be offended by me telling you that's completely wrong. <laughs> no, on absolutely every level, not. I would never think anything wrong. I've never, it's, ever. It's, it's, on every level, if you, there's not a college campus in the country, even if you were to, um, to go to any of the faith-based universities, we, I just had 70 university presidents here, and they covered the whole spectrum of every type of, of public and private university. Every single one of the presidents in one of those campuses says they've had major concern about Ukraine. And not a single campus that any viewer can name, not a single one can name a vigil in support of Putin. That's just not the no, case. No, absolutely and not. We, yeah. Last week, we had vigils on every campus. Here at Yale, we, we, the big problem was we had seven the same day. We had senators here. We had Ukrainian the mayor of Kiev. We had all kinds of people here. And this is not unique to Yale. Harvard had the same. I was just up at Harvard yesterday uh, behind enemy lines, so to speak. And there I found they had the same problem. There's such a surge of support. Science, where I, wherever I went, I also happened to do a little talk at Brandeis uh, earlier in the week, and I was at Tufts yesterday. I saw signs, I swear to you, on every window in dorms saying stop Russia or Ukrainian flags. Uh, I'm, I'm actually really happy no to hear that. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just that law students are super cynical. <laughs> I haven't seen it around Georgetown Law, but I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear you say that, actually. Yeah, and at Georgetown Law School, there is, there's not been a single demonstration in favor of Putin. There's no a single demonstration at Georgetown, right? There hasn't been, but there has been at Georgetown. I think I could send you something I have right here at a demonstration at Georgetown Law School, which I'll forward to you hmm, in favor okay. yeah. of the no, Ukraine. No, no, I haven't seen the other side. So it is in, inherent, uh, whether or not it's journalism or Western self-criticism or cynicism, is we, we need to put that on hold for right now because it is as righteous a cause and universally felt uh, throughout society. Now, if there's an insidious effect of, of, of Putin propaganda that weans its way in there, for example, with the IMF, what we know is they have no data from Russia other than two numbers that Putin puts out. He's supposed to put out 60 national income statistics to be an IMF member. The head of the IMF has granted them a unique, historic, one-country exemption from the 60 state of statistics they're supposed to contribute of imports, of exports, of foreign direct investment. So they admit to us, quote, we are flying blind when it comes to Russia. They have no idea. There have been three heads of Rostat in the last year, uh, two, and there's a third uh, you put in over the last 14 months. Rostat is their Economic Statistics Bureau. It's apparatchiks at the core of it now, and they have suppressed their information. But we know because we, wherever Russia's the seller, we went to the buyer. Russia's the buyer, we went to the seller, we went to third parties. We have recreated Russia's economy, and we have seen that it is down anywhere from retail 65% to the automotive industry down 99%. We know that, uh, that roughly um, uh, around 35, 40% of their population has been put out of work because of the, the company withdrawals, these 1,000 companies that pulled out. So then for Putin to suggest that their economy is going to outstrip the growth of Germany and UK, and for the IMF to ratify that based on no information other than Putin wakes up in the morning and randomly picks a GDP number and then throws out a ruble, which is not a traded currency. It's, it's by fiat, by command. He puts a number on it. All this has changed in this last year, and the IMF has canonized it. Happily, the World Bank, Goldman Sachs, and everybody else doesn't believe Putin's numbers. The IMF, for some reason, does. It's the same IMF head who is also uh, a sharply criticized in a Wilmer 
Wilmer study of them commissioned by the, the World Bank when she headed up the chief economist for the World Bank. They found that it was politically driven uh, excuses to try to make China look good. She's now doing that, that was for actually, whatever That was actually the Russia. other question I was going to ask, Jeff, was, was just, why is the IMF being such a bunch of suckers? Well, the World Bank and the IMF politically often have leaned separate ways as almost by design over the, ne- the last near century. So there's been a political bias that goes opposite both ways. For whatever reason, this, um, the Biden administration has been unsuccessful or unenthusiastic about filling the seat that's open. The U.S. has almost a 20% vote on the IMF at 17 point some percent. And we have it empty right now through the entire Biden administration. That seat has been empty. It would help if we had a voice there to call for truth and honesty. So that matters too. Secondly, and third, I don't know why she is so Putin-leaning, but she is endorsing Putin's unsupported economic data. And she admitted that basically, if you pull up the transcript on CNN this morning, she admitted that the economy is is really down around 20%. They told us that over the summer, and they said they had egg on their face, that they misguessed their estimates on energy. They didn't realize that gas is fungible. We have that taped. The gas is not fungible and they can't sell any of their gas to anybody. For example, in oil, they're losing money on it. And that's most of their economy is that they still said, well, we don't have any other data sources other than what Putin gives us. So they're still blindly reading off his limited, his limited reports and canonizing and certifying it. It's a travesty. It's outrageous. Were there no IMF, the world would be a better place. There's no justification for this. It's, it's about as dangerous an institution we have is for them to put that out and for press to swear by the IMF as an objective third-party yardstick. It's not. Thanks very much, Jeff. I, I, I also, for confirming a pre-existing and long-standing prejudice I have against the way the IMF goes about viewing and compiling its statistics on the world. So thank you for that. Um, I also sort of fondly recollect when you were talking about student and campus boycotts, apartheid versus um, Putin, that... Uh, us spraying, there were two Barclays Bank ATMs at university and us spraying white over one of them and black over the other because Barclays was the retail, British retail bank most exposed to South Africa. I guess, so a couple of questions. I mean, uh, you know, I guess it's a little bit more difficult now to identify really big, obvious household names. I think TGI Fridays might be one of them that still has operations in Russia. It's a, just a harder thing to do. And I'd love you to enlighten me on that. Um, but the other, question, the other question is about China. Now, you mentioned China isn't really helping Russia at the moment, but there are lots of, there, there are lots of reports of spare parts, intermediate goods, some of the high-tech stuff that's now missing from Russia's previous Western imp- uh, imports that suggests that there is quite a big China role there over and above buying whatever whatever underpriced oil that Russia is getting to them. Could you just expand a bit on the China thing? Because that's clearly a, a, a critically important issue if we're trying to game out the sustainability or otherwise of Putin's economy. Now, Rosa, if I'm nice to him, you won't take it personally, will you? Because remember, the questions you raised, I challenged them only because you are an innocent uh, platform for some something which is discussed in society. I, I will, I will love... hold it against you and Ed forever. Okay, because I agree with everything that Ed said so much that <laughs> he's lucky we're not near each other. I'd be hugging him. He's exactly right on the complexity, uh, on the nuances here. And uh, what we do have to admit is 
something is getting in in some critical sectors. There are aviation parts. If we were speaking exactly this day last year, we would say Aeroflot and their domestic carrier C7 are grounded. They're not now. They're back up in the skies. So let's say that Russia has lower standards for airworthiness for, for planes to be up there. I don't know that they do, but let's just say that they do. Still, after three weeks, no planes can be flying if they haven't been serviced. And to be serviced, that means replacement parts. They're getting those replacement parts. No more than 10% of those aviation parts could possibly be produced internally in Russia. I could send you, we actually have every single Russian airplane, a commercial airplane, we have it chartered right now through our, our fantastic data sources. And we know how much is in storage. We have, they have some that are mothballed that they do harvest. And happily, the Western, the non-cynical Western media has said, well, they're probably harvesting it. I have to admit to you, I wish that were the case. And this is almost a little Rosa leaning in the answer is something is getting in there undermining the sanctions. Is not, something's not working 100% because it's not enough. There's just, this is way more is getting in there than can be harvested. And Putin is surviving by propaganda. He's surviving by cannibalization, you know, refrigerators torn apart for electronics and things. But that doesn't explain it all is that whether or not it's Turkey, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, there's something that's getting in there. And we know that when it comes to aviation, we've talked to the leaders just among we friends here of Airbus, well, especially of Boeing, and they acknowledge their parts are getting in there, but they say, we're not sending them there. Okay, but it's sort of, um, I, I'll think I'll need a lawyer in a minute here, but it's almost like asking about, do the drug retail companies have no culpability? Was it just... Um, the, uh, the opiate makers themselves that, that led to the problem? And the, or do we need to worry about not just the physicians who prescribed those drugs wrongly, but that we know the major chains had surge demand in certain locations that was unjustified by the... So what's going on in surge demand? It, let's just say it's Turkey or Kazakhstan or somewhere, is that all we're getting from the major aviation... And this is, this is also true for electronics. Uh, you know, we have to be very friendly with the CEOs of AMD and Intel, Qualcomm, and uh, Texas Instruments, uh, analog devices and things. And, and yet, yet their chips are, seem to be getting into Russia to some extent. How are they getting there? If you look at the companies, the companies only break out the data in terms of regions like Europe, but they need to break it out more finely because they know if it's a surge, let's just say hypothetically from Turkey, they should be accountable for whoever their third party is they're selling it to in Turkey. And frankly, if I knew you better, I would tell you, I just told this to Senator Blumenthal this morning, but I, I couldn't tell you that because that would seem indiscreet, is I do think that the Senate Armed Services Committee should make this their bailiwick and look into this because it ties into armed services. It's not a Senate Finance Committee. It's not like, you're absolutely right, Ed. I hate to admit it. I don't care about apparel leaking in. And by the way, you'll see some cynics will say, well, Putin, Putin says that BP uh, still has an account there or JP Morgan. He has phantom accounts. That's, that's PR. That's nonsense. They've shut everything down those places and they just can't formally close certain accounts, even though they've written them off hundred percent, they can't legally reclaim them. Putin uses them as a piggy bank. He takes money in and out of them. And there'll also be some counterfeit apparel or watches, some consumer appliances and things. Who cares about that? And if you wait long enough, if you, if you wait six months and you're willing to pay 70% more, you can probably get a replacement Apple screen, but you can't run an industry with regular uh, supply that way. But you do see some random smuggling that is, that is enough to help the aviation industry and the weapons industry. So, but just sorry, on the sustainability question, I mean, because this seems to me the, the most sort of critical part of this is if, is if the Russian economy has shrunk, I don't know, 11% last year rather than 2%. 
and is going to shrink an equivalent amount this year, then that would give a much shorter time horizon for his ability to sustain this war, right? So it, what what's your best guesstimate of how much longer economically this can be sustained? If my research team was around me right now, they would disconnect the, uh, our discussion because the, everybody on my team wants to fight me from putting out a number because just like the IMF has no justification to put out a number, we don't. But because I love you guys so much, I have to tell you truthfully, I can't imagine that we can be in this exact situation next year if the, the blockade holds together, because this is six times the South African blockade in terms of the industrial might that left the country, in terms of the inability to bring in revenue. They are not making money by the oil that they're selling. And this has been a bumper crop for wheat for the whole world. And some analysts, self-interested, conflicted analysts would go on television networks, financial networks, and tell you things like, uh, cadmium, you know, uh, palladium or, or something else that's missing nickel. We can get that anywhere else in the world now. Thanks to Russia, it's become economical to Harvard to, to mine this out of South Africa and, and parts of South America. Is We don't need Russia. Russia is no longer a superpower in any stretch, of, economically, in any stretch. They have thermonuclear weapons, but they're not an economic superpower. So all they have are those nuclear weapons. I can't speak for what, what impact those nuclear weapons will have, but economically, they can't sustain themselves to be in this situation next year. We're starting to see a lot of the uprising happening. Forget those public opinion polls. As Navalny has been trying to tell us, who in their right mind is going to answer a Gallup or let alone a domestic poll about if you get 15 years for using the word war, how are they going to acknowledge anything else? Uh, and uh, and so that's, that's a problem. But there are companies that shouldn't be there. We're happy to say Hard Rock just pulled out. So we're about to upgrade Hard Rock. They're shutting down their last St. Petersburg restaurant this week. And uh, that took them a while. And we're also very disappointed, candidly, in Heineken and Carlsberg that misled us. So we've downgraded them and some other companies like Mars that, that are very close to this campus that shouldn't be there. They, they do say it reaches parts that other beers don't reach. And maybe that means parts of Russia. Yeah, that's, that, that's very, very troubling. And, you know, what is, uh, what's Tinder doing there? You know, Tinder is still there. And Huntsman Chemical, you remember John Huntsman, who... Uh, Despite being a part of the Trump administration, you wouldn't consider him a MAGA person. He certainly was uh, a, a very strong antagonist to Putin. He was Trump's ambassador to, to Russia and very hostile to Putin. And his brother, Peter Huntsman, still has Huntsman chemical in there. You can imagine that's an odd family dinner table. There are some torture explanations that the, some in the pharma and medical device industry have for being there. Stryker should not be there and, and Zimmer Biomed should not be there. They argue that these are essentials. We have a lot of companies that are providing cosmetics and confections that are saying that they're essentials that are for being there. Nabisco is talking about the essential goods. What, you know, uh, it's, just, it's just crazy uh, uh, providing, you know, cookies and gum and candy. But even if they were essentials, by the way, even the drug companies are mainly providing analgesics and antihistamines for headaches and sniffles. But even if they were uh, life-sustaining, who cares? You know, if Gandhi didn't mind blocking ambulances, the idea of civil unrest here is the humane, humane solution. And we tried to explain this to Oxfam and everybody else. The humane solution is this is a last chance effort to stop a catastrophic military war from spreading greatly around the world. Spreading in, in, uh, is that instead of raining bombs and bullets on people, so we're going to raise the level of discontent. And whenever I hear people in the administration say the Russian people aren't the target, it does give me the creeps because that is not true. The Russian people are the target. We want to raise the level of discomfort not just for the oligarchs and for some discomfort around Putin's family or his girlfriend or whatever everything, 
is for the average Russian. You remember David Goldhammer's book on Hitler's willing executioners, I think 1995, Knopf. I'm sure you remember. I think he even wrote about it, is that it was what he argues, and, and many other historians argued, of course, is the success and triumph of the Third Reich wasn't that, that Hitler was such a brilliant strategic genius or there was such embedded hatred, but it was the relative, it was the complacency that made them complicit with the Third Reich. And that's the trouble with Russia. With Russia, we don't see the backbone of the average Russian that we do of Ukraines and Poles and others who have resisted this. In fact, what we see is an intimate family members can't persuade their own moms and dads that this is the truth when they're on the outside calling in on phone calls. The They know that there's no free press. They know that every journal, that aren't 87 journalists just aren't clumsy in Russia and fell out of windowsills. They know that an independent voice is either killed or imprisoned or both. And they and only only 4% of tech-savvy Russians, which is 70% of their population, are willing to download a VPN to have access to the truth. So we have to reach the complacency of the average Russian. They are the target of these uh, economic pressures. Well, that's a great place to end. This has been a great summary and overview, although it leaves me with many more questions, and I hope, Jeff, we'll be able to invite you back to join us. We usually take a break at this point in our discussion. And uh, for those of you who are out there in the general public, we say thanks for listening. And for those of you who are members, we say stand by. We're going to talk a little bit more about what Jeff was talking about, and we're going to talk about China. Ed has a new column on that. So stand by.